Chapter Twenty Nine of A Son of the Middle Border by Hamlin Garland. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. I joined the Anti-Poverty Brigade. In the slow procession of my struggling fortunes, this visit to the West seems important, for it was the beginning of my career as a fictionist. My talk with Kirkland and my perception of the sordid monotony of farm life had given me a new and very definite emotional relationship to my native state i perceived now the tragic value of scenes which had hitherto appeared merely dull or petty my eyes were open to the enforced misery of the pioneer as a reformer my blood was stirred to protest as a writer i was beset with the desire to record in some form this newly born conception of the border no sooner did i reach my little desk in jamaica plain than i began to write composing in the glow of a flaming conviction with a delightful and deceptive sense of power i graved with heavy hand as if with pen of steel on brazen tablets picture after picture of the plain i had no doubts no hesitations about the kind of effect i wished to produce i perceived little that was poetic little that was idyllic and nothing that was humorous in the man who with hands like claws was scratching a scanty living from the soil of a rented farm while his wife walked her ceaseless rounds from tub to churn and from churn to tub on the contrary the life of such a family appealed to me as an almost unrelievedly tragic futility in the few weeks between my return and the beginning of my teaching i wrote several short stories and outlined a propagandist play with very little thought as to whether such stories would sell rapidly or not at all i began to send them away to the century to harper's and other first-class magazines without permitting myself any deep disappointment when they came back as they all did however having resolved upon being printed by the best periodicals i persisted notwithstanding rejection after rejection i maintained an elevated aim and continued to fire away there was a certain arrogance in all this i will admit but there was also sound logic for i was seeking the ablest editorial judgment and in this way i got it my manuscripts were badly put together i used cheap paper and could not afford a typist hence i could not blame the readers who hurried my stories back at me no doubt my illegible writing as well as the blunt unrelenting truth of my pictures repelled them one or two friendly souls who wrote personal notes protesting against my false interpretation of western life the fact that i a working farmer was presenting for the first time in fiction the actualities of western country life did not impress them favorably as i had expected it to do my own pleasure in being true was not shared it would seem by others give us charming love stories pleaded the editors no we've had enough of lies i replied other writers are telling the truth about the city the artisan's narrow grimy dangerous job is being pictured and it appears to me that the time has come to tell the truth about the barnyard's daily grind i have lived a life and i know that farming is not entirely made up of burying tossing the new mown hay and singing the old oaken bucket on the porch by moonlight the working farmer i went on to argue has to live in february as well as june he must pitch manure as well as clover milking as depicted on a blue china plate 
where a maid in a flounced petticoat is caressing a gentle jersey cow in a field of daisies is quite unlike sitting down to the steaming flank of a stinking brindle heifer in fly time pitching odorous thimity in a poem and actually putting it into a mow with a temperature at ninety-eight in the shade are widely separated in fact as they should be in fiction for me i concluded the grime and the mud and the sweat and the dust exist they still form a large part of life on the farm and i intend that they shall go into my stories in their proper proportions alas each day made me more and more the dissenter from accepted economic as well as literary conventions i became less and less of the booming indiscriminating patriot precisely as successful politicians popular preachers and vast traders diminished in importance in my mind so the significance of whitman and tolstoy and george increased for they all represented qualities which make for saner happier and more equitable conditions in the future perhaps i despised idlers and time-savers unduly but i was of an age to be extreme during the autumn henry george was announced to speak in faneuil hall sacred art of liberty and with eager feet my brother and i hastened to the spot to hear this reformer whose fame already resounded throughout the english-speaking world beginning his campaign in california he had carried it to ireland where he had been twice imprisoned for speaking his mind and now after having set bernard shaw and other english fabians aflame with indignant protest was about to run for mayor of new york city i have an impression that the meeting was a noonday meeting for men at any rate the historical old hall which had echoed to the voices of garrison and phillips and webster was filled with an eager expectant throng the sanded floor was packed with auditors standing shoulder to shoulder and the galleries were crowded with these who like ourselves had gone early in order to ensure seats from our places in the front row we looked down upon an almost solid mosaic of derby hats the majority of which were rusty by exposure to wind and rain as i waited i recalled my father's stories of the stern passions of anti-slavery days in this hall wendell phillips in the pride and power of his early manhood had risen to reply to the cowardly apologies of entrenched conservatism and here now another voice was about to be raised in behalf of those whom the law oppressed my brother had also read progress and poverty and both of us felt that we were taking part in a distinctly historical event the beginning of a new abolition movement at last a steer at the back of the platform announced the approach of the speaker three or four men suddenly appeared from some concealed door and entered upon the stage one of them a short man with a full red beard we recognized at once the prophet of san francisco as he was then called in fine derision was not a noticeable man till he removed his hat then the fine lines of his face from the crown of his head to the tip of his chin printed itself ineffaceably upon our minds the dome-like brow was that of one highly specialized on lines of logic and sympathy there was also something in the tense poise of his body which foretold the orator impatiently the audience endured the speakers who prepared the way and then finally george stepped forward but prolonged waves of cheering again and again prevented his beginning 
thereupon he started pacing to and fro along the edge of the platform his big head thrown back his small hands clenched as if in anticipation of coming battle he no longer appeared small he was the mastermind of that assembly his first words cut across the air with singular calmness coming after the applause following the nervous movement of a moment before his utterance was surprisingly cold masterful and direct action had condensed into speech heat was transformed into light his words were orderly and well chosen they had precision and grace as well as power he spoke as other men write with style and arrangement his address could have been printed word for word as it fell from his lips this self-mastery this graceful lucidity of utterance combined with a personal presence distinctive and dignified reduced even his enemies to respectful silence his altruism his sincere pity and his hatred for injustice sent me away in the mood of a disciple meanwhile a few of his followers had organized an anti-poverty society similar to those which had already sprung up in new york and my brother and i used to go of a sunday evening to the old horticultural hall on tremont street contributing our presents and our dimes in aid of the meeting speakers were few and as the weeks went by the audiences grew smaller and smaller till one night chairman roche announced with sad intonation that the meetings could not go on you've all got tired of hearing us repeat ourselves and we have no new speaker none at all for next week i'm afraid we'll have to quit my brother turned to me here's your call he said volunteer to speak for them recognizing my duty i rose as the audience was leaving and sought the chairman with a tremor of excitement in my voice i said if you can use me as a speaker for next sunday i will do my best for you roche glanced at me for an instant and then without a word of question shouted to the audience wait a moment we have a speaker for next sunday then bending down he asked of me what is your name and occupation i told him and again he lifted his voice this time in triumphant shout professor hamlin garland will speak for us next sunday at eight o'clock come and bring all your friends you are in for it now laughed my brother gleefully you'll be lined up with the anarchists sure that evening was in a very real sense a parting of the ways for me to refuse this call was to go selfishly and comfortably along the lines of literary activity i had chosen to accept was to enter the arena where problems of economic justice were being sternly fought out i understood already something of the disadvantage which attached to being called a reformer but my sense of duty and the influence of herbert spencer and walt whitman rose above my doubts i decided to do my part all the week i agonized over my address and on sunday spoke to a crowded house with a kind of partisan success on monday my good friend chamberlain the listener of the transcript filled his column with a long review of my heretical harangue with one leap i had reached the limelight of conservative boston disapproval chamberlain himself a philosophical anarchist was pleased with the individualistic note which ran through my harangue the single taxers were of course delighted for i admitted my discipleship to george and my socialistic friends 
urged that the general effect of my argument was on their side altogether for a penniless student and a struggling story writer i created something of a sensation all my speeches thereafter helped to dye me deeper than ever with the color of reform however in the midst of my anti-poverty campaign i did not entirely forget my fiction and my teaching i was becoming more and more of a companion of artists and poets and my devotion to things literary deepened from day to day a dreadful theorist in some ways i was after all more concerned with literary than with social problems writing was my life land reform one of my convictions high in my attic room i bent above my manuscript with a fierce resolve from eight o'clock in the morning until half-past twelve i dug and polished in the afternoon i met my classes in the evening i revised what i had written and in case i did not go to the theatre or to a lecture i had no social engagement i wrote until ten o'clock for recreation i sometimes drove with dr cross on his calls or walked the lanes and climbed the hills with my brother in this way most of my stories of the west were written happy in my own work i bitterly resented the laws which created millionaires at the expense of the poor these were the days of security and tranquillity and good friends thickened each week i felt myself in less danger of being obliged to shingle though i still had difficulty in clothing myself properly again i saw booth play his wondrous round of parts and was able to complete my monograph which i called the art of edwin booth i even went so far as to send to the great actor the chapter on his macbeth and received from him grateful acknowledgments in a charming letter a little later i had the great honor of meeting him for a moment and it happened in this way the veteran reader james e murdoch was giving a recital in a small hall on park street and it was privately announced that edwin booth and lawrence barrett would be present this was enough to justify me in giving up one of my precious dollars on the chance of seeing the great tragedian enter the room he came in a little late flushing timid apologetic it seemed to me a very curious and wonderful thing that this man who had spoken to millions of people from behind the footlights should be timid as a maid when confronted by less than two hundred of his worshipful fellow-citizens in a small hall so gentle and kindly did he seem my courage grew and after the lecture i approached the spot where he stood and mr barrett introduced me to him as the author of the lecture on macbeth never had i looked into such eyes deep and dark and sad and my tongue failed me miserably i could not say a word booth smiled with kindly interest and murmured his thanks for my critique and i went away down across the common in a glow of delight and admiration in the midst of all my other duties i was preparing my brother franklin for the stage yes through some mischance this son of the prairie had obtained the privilege of studying with a retired little lady who still occasionally made tours of the garrison circuit and who had agreed to take him out with her provided he made sufficient progress to warrant it it was to prepare him for this trip that i met him three nights in the week at his office he was bookkeeper in a cutlery firm and there rehearsed east lynne 
leah the forsaken and the lady of lions from seven o'clock until nine i held the book whilst they pranced and shouted and gesticulated through its lines at last emboldened by his star's praise he cut loose from his ledger and went out on a tour which was extremely diverting but not at all remunerative the company ran on a reef and frank sent for carfare which i cheerfully remitted crediting it to his educational account the most vital literary man in all america at this time was william dean howells who was in the full tide of his powers and an issue all through the early eighties reading boston was divided into two parts those who liked howells and those who fought him and the most fiercely debated question at the clubs was whether his heroines were true to life or whether they were caricatures in many homes he was read aloud with keen enjoyment of his delicate humor and his graceful incisive english in other circles he was condemned because of his injustice to the finer sex as for me having begun my literary career as the reader may recall by assaulting this leader of the realistic school i had ended naturally by becoming his public advocate how could i help it it is true a large part of one of my lectures consisted of a gratuitous slam at mr howells and the so-called realists but further reading and deeper thought along the lines indicated by whitman had changed my view one of walt's immortal invitation which had appealed to me with special power was this stop this day and night with me and you shall possess the origin of all poems you shall no longer take things at second or third hand nor look through the eyes of the dead nor through my eyes either but through your own eyes you shall listen to all sides and filter them from yourself thus by a circuitous route i had arrived at a position where i found myself inevitably a supporter not only of howells but of henry james whose work assumed ever larger significance in my mind i was ready to concede with the realist that the poet might go round the earth and come back to find the things nearest at hand the sweetest and best after all but that certain injustices certain cruel facts must not be blinked at and so while admiring the grace the humor the satire of howells's books i was saved from anything like imitation by the sterner and darker material in which i worked my wall of prejudice against the author of a modern instance really began to sag when during the second year of my stay in boston i took up and finished the undiscovered country which i had begun five or six years before but it was the minister's charge which gave me the final push to my defences and fetched them tumbling about my ears in a cloud of dust in fact it was a review of this book written for the transcript which brought about a meeting with the great novelist my friend hurt liked the review and had it set up the editor mr clement upon reading it in proof said to hurt this is an able review put it in as an editorial who is the writer of it hurt told him about me and clement was interested send him to me he said on saturday i was not only surprised and delighted by the sight of my article in a large type at the head of the literary page i was flattered by the word which mr clement had sent to me humbly as a minstrel might enter the court of his king i went before the editor and stood expectantly while he said that was an excellent article 
i'd sent it to mr howells you should know him and sometime i will give you a letter to him but not now wait a while war is being made upon him just now and if you were to meet him your criticism would have less weight his enemies would say that you have come under his personal influence go ahead with the work you have in hand and after you have put yourself on record concerning him and his books i will see that you meet him like a knight enlisted in a holy war i descended the long narrow stairway to the street and went to my home without knowing what had passed me i ruminated for hours on mr clement's praise i read and re-read my able article till i knew it by heart and then i started in seriously to understand and estimate the school of fiction to which mr howells belonged i read every one of his books as soon as i could obtain them i read james too and many of the european realists but it must have been two years before i called upon mr clement to redeem his promise deeply excited with my note of introduction carefully stowed in my inside pocket i took the train one summer afternoon bound for lee's hotel in auburndale where mr howells was at this time living i fervently hoped that the building would not be too magnificent for i felt very small and very poor on alighting at the station and every rod of my advance sensibly decreased my self-esteem starting with faltering feet i came to the entrance of the grounds in a state of panic and as i looked up the path toward the towering portico of the hotel it seemed to me the palace of an emperor and my resolution entirely left me actually i walked up the street for some distance before i was able to secure sufficient grip on myself to return and enter it is entirely unwarranted and very presumptuous in me to be thus intruding on a great author's time i admitted but it was too late to retreat and so i kept on entering the wide central hall i crept wearily across its polished hardwood floor to the desk where a highly ornate clerk presided in a meek husky voice i asked is mr howells in he is but he's at dinner the despot on the other side of the counter coldly replied and his tone implied that he didn't think the great author would relish being disturbed by an individual who didn't even know the proper time to call however i produced my letter of introduction and with some excess of spirit requested his highness to have it sent in a colored porter soon returned showed me to a reception room off the hall and told me that mr howells would be out in a few minutes during these minutes i sat with eyes on the portieres and a frog in my throat how will he receive me how will he look what shall i say to him i asked myself and behold i hadn't an idea left suddenly the curtains parted and a short man with a large head stood framed in the opening his face was impassive but his glance was one of the most piercing i had ever encountered in a single instance before he smiled he discovered my character and my thought as though his eyes had been the lenses of some singular and powerful x-ray instrument it was the glance of a novelist of course all this took but a moment's time then his face softened became winning and his glance was gracious i'm glad to see you he said and his tone was cordial won't you be seated we took seats at the opposite ends of a long sofa and mr howells began at once to inquire concerning the work and the purposes of his visitor 
he soon drew forth the story of my coming to boston and developed my theory of literature listening intently while i told him of my history of american ideals and my attempt at fiction my conception of the local novel and of its great importance in american literature especially interested the master who listened intently while i enlarged upon my reasons for believing that the local novel would continue to grow in power and insight at the end i said in my judgment the men and women of the south the west and the east are working without knowing it in accordance with a great principle which is this american literature in order to be great must be national and in order to be national must deal with conditions peculiar to our own land and climate every genuinely american writer must deal with the life he knows best and for which he cares the most thus joel chandler harris george w cable joseph kirkland sarah orne jewett and mary wilkins like bret hart are but varying phases of the same movement a movement which is to give us at last a really vital and original literature one set going i fear i went on like the political orator who doesn't know how to sit down i don't think i did quit howells stopped me with a compliment you're doing a fine and valuable work he said and i thought he meant it and he did mean it each of us has had some perception of this movement but no one has correlated it as you have done i hope you will go on and finish and publish your essays these words uttered perhaps out of momentary conviction brought blood to my face and filled me with conscious satisfaction words of praise by this keen thinker were like golden medals i had good reason to know how discriminating he was in his use of adjectives for he was even then the undisputed leader in the naturalistic school of fiction and to gain even a moment's interview with him would have been a rich reward for a youth who had only just escaped from spreading manure on an iowa farm emboldened by his gracious manner i went on i confessed that i too was determined to do a little at recording by way of fiction the manners and customs of my native west i don't know that i can write a novel but i intend to try i added he was kind enough then to say that he would like to see some of my stories of iowa you have almost a clear field out there no one but howe seems to be tilling it how long he talked or how long i talked i do not know but at last probably in self-defence he suggested that we take a walk we strolled about the garden a few minutes and each moment my spirits rose for he treated me not merely as an aspiring student but as a fellow author in whom he could freely confide at last in his gentle way he turned me toward my train it was then as we were walking slowly down the street that he faced me with the trust of a comrade and asked what would you think of a story dealing with the effect of a dream on a life of a man i have in mind a tale to be called the shadow of a dream or something like that wherein a man is to be influenced in some decided way by the memory of a vision a ghostly figure which is to pursue him and have some share in the final catastrophe whatever it may turn out to be what would you think of such a plot filled with surprise at his trust and confidence i managed to stammer a judgment 
it would depend entirely upon the treatment i answered the theme is a little like hawthorne but i can understand how under your hand it would not be in the least like hawthorne his assent was instant you think it not quite like me you are right it does sound a little lurid i may never write it but if i do you may be sure it will be treated in my own way and not in hawthorne's way stubbornly i persisted there are plenty who can do the weird kind of thing mr howells but there is only one man who can write books like a modern instance and silas lapham all that the novelist said as well as his manner of saying it was wonderfully enriching to me to have such a man one whose fame was even at this time international desire an expression of my opinion as to the fitness of his chosen theme was like feeling on my shoulder the touch of a kingly accolade i went away exalted my apprenticeship seemed over to america's chief literary man i was a fellow-writer a critic and with this recognition the current of my ambition shifted course i began to hope that i too might some day become a social historian as well as a teacher of literature the reformer was still present but the literary man had been reinforced and yet even here i had chosen the unpopular unprofitable side thereafter the gentle courtesy the tact the exquisite yet simple english of this man was my education every hour of his delicious humor his wise advice his ready sympathy sent me away in mingled exultation and despair despair of my own blunt and common diction exultation over his continued interest and friendship how i must have bored that sweet and gracious soul he could not escape me if he moved to belmont i pursued him if he went to nahant or magnolia or kittery i spent my money like water in order to follow him up and bother him about my work or worry him in a public acceptance of the single tax and yet every word he spoke every letter he wrote was a benediction and an inspiration he was a constant revelation to me of the swift transitions of mood to which a celtic man of letters is liable his humor was like a low sweet bubbling geyser spring it rose with a chuckle close upon some very sombre mood and broke into exquisite phrases which lingered in my mind for weeks side by side with every jest was a bitter sigh for he too had been deeply moved by new social ideals and we talked much of the growing contrasts of rich and poor of the suffering and loneliness of the farmer the despair of the proletariat and though i could never quite get him to perceive the difference between his program and ours he was always for some vague socialistic reform he readily admitted that land monopoly was the chief cause of poverty and the first injustice to be destroyed but you must go farther much farther he would sadly say of all my literary friends at this time edgar chamberlain of the transcript was the most congenial he too was from wisconsin and loved the woods and fields with passionate fervor at his house i met many of the young writers of boston at least they were young then sylvester baxter imogen guinea minna smith alice brown mary e wilkins and bradford tory were often there no events in my life except the occasional calls on mr howells were more stimulating to me than the visits to the circle about chamberlain's hearth 
he was the kind of man who could not live without an open fire and mrs chamberlain's boundlessly hospitable table was an equally appealing joy how they regarded me at this time i cannot surely define perhaps they tolerated me out of love for the west but i here acknowledge my obligations to the listener he taught me to recognize literary themes in the city for he brought the same keen insight the same tender sympathy to bear upon the crowds of the streets that he used in describing the songs of the thrush or the whir of the partridge he was especially interested in the italians who were just beginning to pour into the north end displacing the irish as workmen in the streets and often in his column made gracious and charming references to them softening without doubt the suspicion and dislike with which many citizens regarded them heard on the contrary was a very bookish man he sat amidst mountains of books for review and yet he was always ready to welcome the slender volume of the new poet to him i owe much from him i secured my first knowledge of james whitcomb riley and it was heard who first called my attention to kirkland's zuri through him i came to an enthusiasm for the study of ibsen and bjorsen for he was widely read in the literature of the north on the desk of this hard-working ill-paid man of letters who never failed to utter words of encouragement to me i wish to lay a tardy wreath of grateful praise he deserves the best of the world beyond for he got little but hard work from this he loved poetry of all kinds and enjoyed a wide correspondence with those who could not choose but sing his desk was crammed with letters from struggling youths whose names are familiar now and in whom he took an almost paternal interest one day as i was leaving hurd's office he said by the way garland you ought to know jim hearn he's doing much the same sort of work on the stage that you and miss wilkins are putting into the short story here are a couple of tickets to his play go and see it and come back and tell what you think of it hearn's name was new to me but hurd's commendation was enough to take me down to the obscure theatre in the south end where drifting apart was playing the play was advertised as a story of the gloucester fisherman and katherine hearn was the mary miller of the piece hearn's part was that of a stalwart fisherman married to a delicate young girl and when the curtain went up on his first scene i was delighted with the setting it was a veritable cottage interior not an english cottage but an american working man's home the worn chairs the rag rugs the sewing machine doing duty as a flower stand all were in keeping the dialogue was homely intimate almost trivial and yet contained a sweet and touching quality it was indeed of a piece with the work of miss jewett only more humorous and the action of katherine and james hearn was in key with the text the business of jack shaving and getting ready to go down the street was most delightful in spirit and the act closed with a touch of true pathos the second act a dream act was not so good but the play came back to realities in the last act and sent us all away in joyous mood it was for me the beginning of the local color american drama and before i went to sleep that night i wrote a letter to hearn telling him how significant i found his play and wishing him the success he deserved almost by return mail came his reply thanking me for good wishes and expressing a desire to meet me we are almost always at home on sunday and shall be very glad to see you whenever you can find time to come 
a couple of weeks later as soon as i thought it seemly i went out to ashmont to see them for my interest was keen i knew no one connected with the stage at this time and i was curious to know i was almost frenziedly eager to know the kind of folk the hearns were my first view of their house was a disappointment it was quite like any other two-story suburban cottage it had a small garden but it faced directly on the walk and was a most uninspiring colour but if the house disappointed me the home did not hearn who looked older than when on stage met me with a curiously impassive face but i felt his friendship through this mask catherine who was even more charming than mary miller wore no mask she was radiantly cordial and we were friends at once both persisted in calling me professor although i explained that i had no right to any such title in the end they compromised by calling me the dean and the dean i remained in all the happy years of our friendship not the least of the charms of this home was the companionship of hearn's three lovely little daughters julie crystal and dorothy who liked the dean i don't know why and were always at the door to greet me when i come no other household meant as much to me no one understood more clearly than the hearns the principle i stood for and no one was more interested in my plans for uniting the scattered members of my family before i knew it i had told them all about my mother and her pitiful condition and catherine's expressive face clouded with sympathetic pain you'll work it out she said i am sure of it and her confident words were a comfort to me they were true celts swift to laughter and quick with tears they inspired me to bolder flights they met me on every plane of my intellectual interests and our discussions of herbert spencer henry george and william dean howells often lasted deep into the night in all matters concerning the american drama we were in accord having found these rare and inspiring souls i was not content until i had introduced them to all my literary friends i became their publicity agent without authority and without pay for i felt the injustice of a situation where such artists could be shunted into a theatre in the south end where no one ever saw them at least no one of the world of arts and letters their cause was my cause their success my chief concern drifting apart i soon discovered was only the beginning of hearn's ambitious design to write plays which should be as true in their local colour as howell's stories he was at this time working on two plays which were to bring lasting fame and a considerable fortune one of these was a picture of new england coast life and the other was a study of factory life one became shore acres and the other margaret fleming from time to time as we met he read me these plays scene by scene as he wrote them and when margaret fleming was finished i helped him put it on at chickering hall my brother was in the cast and i served as man in front for six weeks again without pay of course and did my best to let boston know what was going on there in that little theatre the first of all the little theatres in america then came the success of shore acres at the boston museum and my sense of satisfaction was complete how all this puts me back into that other shining boston i am climbing again those three long flights of stairs to the transcript office chamberlain extends a cordial hand clement nods as i pass his door
it is raining and in the wet street the vivid reds greens and yellows of horse cars splashed the pavement with gaudy colour round the tower of the old south church the doves are whirling it is saturday i am striding across the common to park square hurrying to catch the five o two train the trees of the mall are shaking their heavy tears upon me drays thunder afar off bells tinkle how simple quiet village-like the city of my vision seems in contrast with the boston of today with its diabolic subways its roaring overhead trains its electric cars and its streaming automobiles over and over again i have tried to rediscover that boston but it is gone never to return hearn is dead hurd is dead clement no longer edits the transcript howells and mary wilkins live in new york louise chandler moulton lies deep in that grave of whose restful quiet she often sang and edward everett hale a type of new england that was old when i was young has also passed into silence his name like that of higginson and holmes is only a faint memory in the marble splendors of the new public library the ravening years how they destroy End of chapter twenty nine